Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes and Damon between Soko and Ezekiah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath who was from Gath came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armour of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and, on a, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistine's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thanks, Marie. Still Marie. Good morning, everyone. Could you stand with me, please? We're doing an experiment. We put the pulpit down here this morning to see how we go. I'm not sure why we've done that. Whether it's simply so we don't have to move that or whether it's um, a flashback to the activity centre. <laughs> not sure. Take 35, no, 37 seconds and turn and greet the people who are around you. Go. Thank you. Time's up. Please be seated. If you met somebody for the first time, you might like to take the opportunity after our service to have a cup of tea or coffee or whatever together and to get to know each other a bit more. If you already know all the people who are sitting around you, then it's an opportunity for you to have extended time of fellowship together. And I do, we invite your feedback, your response to the preacher preaching from down here on the floor, whether that's okay, or if it's more difficult. Uh, the only issue that I can think of is going to be visibility, but that can be a good thing for some people, I'm sure. 1 Samuel chapter 17 we are up to and working our way through. It's a chapter which has been greatly misunderstood over the course of time, and you've probably heard other sermons on this passage. I think this is in fact the first time that I've actually preached through this passage. Not this service, last service was the first time I've preached through it. <clears throat> first Sunday I've ever had to deal with a story. Probably taught it in Sunday school or something like that. Put up your hand if you've heard this passage interpreted that Goliath is 
the problem or the issue or the difficulty that we have in our own life and that we, like David, are to look to God and to overcome our poor self-esteem or the financial burden we have or the great difficulty or maybe your Goliath is an annoying neighbour or whatever. And our Goliaths, we can overcome the giants and the problems and obstacles in our life if we do like David did. Who's heard that sort of message? Oh, most of you. Well, that's the truth. That's what. No, it's not. The passage is not about that. It's, that's certainly what happens. David does overcome Goliath, but that's not the point of this chapter. It's a sub-point. If, um, and you miss the main point of this chapter, then you are not listening to the Word of God. What is this chapter about? It's about the honour of Yahweh's name. It's about the honour of God. It's about the Lord's name being defied, slurred, by the enemy, by an opponent, a godless person who is defying the name of God and it's about one of God's people standing up, taking the risk to bring about a correction to that inappropriate behaviour. It's David being passionate about God's name, God's glory, God's reputation. David being driven by his concern for the honour of God. It's more important to him than life itself. And that's to be our focus as followers of the Lord Jesus, that we are to be passionate in our love and following him. I'm going to pray and then we're going to spend a fair bit of time in the introduction. The first 35 verses or thereabouts, first 40 verses, are all introduction to this till you get to the main point of this chapter. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the opportunity we have to meet, to sing, to encourage each other, to have fellowship together, to read and to learn from your word together, to uh, be motivated and encouraged in our journey of following the Lord Jesus. Lord, we look to you again this morning and ask that by your spirit you might be pleased to speak to us, that you might be pleased to challenge us, and that through this process you might uh, shape us removing whatever barnacles from our lives that we might be passionate, might be fully devoted, focused on serving and following the Lord Jesus. And we ask this in his name and for his sake. Everybody said? In terms of the introduction, uh, the author, it's a brilliantly written story, I think. Um, He gives us the location, verses 1 to 3, and then he introduces us to two characters. You've had the first one introduced to you this morning in the reading, Goliath. But there is a second person for us to meet, and we will in a moment, David. So let's look firstly at the introduction so you've got an idea of the location of this. Um, we are told that the Philistines have again gathered their forces for war. They're back again. They've been coming and coming and coming, and this time they're further south, and they've in fact intruded further in. They're now into the land of the tribe of Judah, we are told in verse 1. Now, to get an idea of where Soko and Azekar are, imagine a picture of the Holy Land of Israel and you've got the Sea of Galilee up here and the Jordan River going down and the Dead Sea and then near the Dead Sea, so down the bottom part of the land, parallel to the top of that is about where Jerusalem is and then 10 k's thereabouts, just almost directly south, is the city of Bethlehem, it's where David's from. Now if you go from Bethlehem and the same latitude just straight across, head west, 
then you'll come about, after 20, 25 kilometres, you'll come to these towns and you'll come to a huge valley. And the valley's about a kilometre and a half wide and it runs all the way down towards the Mediterranean Sea. So that's the location. It's a famous place and it's a place that is on the border uh, between, I think, the Dancing Philistines and Judah, somewhere down there. We are told that they pitched their camp at Ephes Damim, border of blood, because there had been other skirmishes. There had been bloodshed there before over the years and now this time the Philistines are back again. They want revenge and they've got a secret weapon. It's not much of a secret because he's huge. When you're in the valley, on one side you have the Philistines and on the other side you have Israel. Saul and his troops have gathered together. And then we are introduced to this giant of a man. Passage says, a champion named Goliath. Quite literally, he is the man who comes between. That's what the word champion is translating. The one who comes between. He's down in the valley. At the bottom of this huge valley, there is a stream that flows through, which over the years has carved out a rut and a small stream is flowing through it. And Goliath comes from his side of the valley and comes into the middle and a big booming voice challenges the people of Israel. The author describes him for us. Why do we get all these details? Well, to give us an impression. Where do we get all these details from? Well, you know the story. You know what's going to happen to Goliath. He's going to lose his head and he's going to be dead on the ground. And I think when Israel came back, they measured him and they weighed all of these things. That's the simple explanation. Look at the details. He was over nine feet tall. Well, literally, he is six cubits and a span. NIV footnote says about three metres. Does that help? How tall is three metres? Well, I'm not two metres. I'm 1.85, something like that. That's not three metres. So I can reach about eight feet. You'll be quiet, I'm talking. <laughs> what did you say it was? Two point. So it's another 600 on top of that. Closer to what? <laughs> See that large pillow there? He's almost that tall. So as tall as I am. And I'm six foot, six foot one or something like that. Look at me compared to him. <laughs> He's a giant. Now there are versions, you know, the Hebrew text and Greek translations and it's sort of like, that's unbelievable how big he is. And of course, other people will say through the Bible, it's a myth, it's a fairy story, nobody's that big. Well, some individuals are. They've found tombs and gravestones and coffins and things like that and not sure anybody found is this big, but there are guys who are huge. Um, so we've got the right impression he's massive person. Not a, he's not just tall, he's got his head covered with a bronze helmet. He's got a coat of mail uh, armour on. <laughs> yep. And we're given the weight of that. We are told that that weighs 57 kilos. As I said to the first congregation, that's my weight, 57 kilos. <laughs> that's what they did. And someone very rudely, not inaccurately, shouted out, yeah, that's one leg. 
that's close to the truth. So that's about half of me and that's what he's wearing on top of himself. He's just lugging this stuff around. He's a massive man. On his legs he's got these bronze greaves. What are they? They're like shin pads. And not only has he got these shin pads on, but he's got a javelin at the back. He's got a spear, size of a weaver's rod, in terms of, I think, size as well as length. It's got a nine point, which weighs 600 shekels, which is about seven kilos, something like that, the notes say. And he's got a shield bearer who goes in front of him. So he's that tall and he's got a shield. Well, how big is the shield going to be? Probably around about my height, close to it. So you've got this nine foot six massive Goliath giant and then you've got this guy with a shield that he's carrying around. To the Israelites looking down from the top of the other side it would look like the shield is on remote control. The guy's carrying his shield around and it's interesting when they first come to go against David as we'll read the shield bearer goes first. Goliath is behind the shield bearer. It's almost like he's a scaredy cat. He's not a scaredy cat. So here is this giant man if you think of a hockey goalkeeper, helmet on, pads on, he's got a big stick, he's got his shins covered, and he's nine foot six tall. Got a wingspan of, I don't know, lot. He is unbeatable, that's the point. That's why we're given all these details. That from a human perspective, he's invulnerable. And that's certainly how Saul and Israel reacted. Verse 8 says... Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Which is a very proud, arrogant statement to begin with. He thinks he's part of a superior race. I'm a Philistine. You guys are just mere servants of Saul. Well, he's wrong. They're not just mere servants of Saul. They're servants of the living God. Saul happens to be the king. But his perspective is all skewed. And then he challenges people. He's arrogant. He's brash and he's overconfident. Choose a man, let him come out, let's go mano we mano, let's arm wrestle this. And whoever wins, if he kills me, then we'll serve you and if I kill him, then you'll serve us. Which is, of course, a lie. That's not what happens. When Goliath is killed, the Philistines run away. They don't stay and become servants like they say here that they will. That's the deception of the enemy. Um, Verse 10 says, The Philistine then said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. Hearing that, Saul is dismayed and terrified. They're not only impressed with the size of this guy, but they are depressed. Their life has been sucked out of them. And there is Saul, who is the tallest man in Israel. He's head and shoulders above all the rest. He, like Goliath, has a bronze helmet. He has armour and he has a sword. Not many in Israel do, but the king does. So everybody's looking at Saul saying, you go fight him. You're the one we elected to be king. You ought to go out in front of us. Go and do it. But he has no faith, no hope, no focus. Why? Well, because in previous chapters we've learned he's a man who is not walking closely with God. He's selective in his obedience. He chooses to do partly of what God says, but not all of it. And because he is not fully obedient, because he's not sold out totally to pleasing and doing what God wants him to do, God's Spirit is no longer anointing him or blessing him or empowering him, not motivating him. He's pretty much left to his own devices and he finds that he is found wanting, lacking. He's a king without a destiny. 
Well, let's meet the second character. It's a long introduction. But this next one, verse 12, is David. And we're given some details about him as well. David was a son of Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. That's interesting. The man, the person that God is going to use to deliver Israel from the enemy will come from Bethlehem, just like the Lord Jesus. So here is David. Jesse had eight sons. And in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years. Verse 13, Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. We're given the names of the first three and we'll meet them again. Verse 14, David was the youngest. So he's the youngest of the pack. The three oldest, uh, we've already been told, followed Saul. And David, note verse 15, is travelling backwards and forwards at 20 kilometres from Bethlehem down to the valley of Elah and back again. He's travelling between his brothers in the army and back home to the sheep on the paddocks or the ranch. Uh, on a regular basis and in all that movement and travelling backwards and forth he had not yet heard Goliath 40 days the Philistine came out every morning and every evening and a big booming voice challenges, defies, dishonours God and challenges Israel verse 17 through the very casual circumstances of life God is now going to achieve his purpose just a normal ordinary thing we ought to always be aware of that that God is at work in our world in the normal ordinary things achieving his purposes verse 17 says Jesse said to his son David take this amount of uh, roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread to your brothers and hurry to their camp take along also ten cheeses give it to the commander and inquire about how they're doing I want some more information see how your brothers and bring back some assurance for me and he tells him where they are Very early the next morning, David, the anointed king from last week, the man who has the Spirit of God come rushing upon him, the man who very humbly is still a shepherd, still serving a small number of sheep out in the fields. Here is David, the anointed king of Israel to come, who is obedient to his father. Early in the morning, David left the flock with a shepherd, loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed Israel's deliverer will come from Bethlehem and he'll be obedient to his father and he'll go looking for his own, for his brothers who will reject him. Interesting, isn't it? He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions lining up and facing each other and just as David gets there he unloads all the stuff, leaves it with somebody, the keeper of supplies and he runs out to greet his brothers on the battle line. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the giant hockey keeper from the Philistines, comes marching out into the middle of the valley and with that very large booming voice again defies God, defies Israel, challenges somebody, come and take me on. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. And the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king saw will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage, which can be nice or not. We don't know what she looks like. She could be, you know, (laughs) ugly. He will give him his daughter in marriage. Maybe that's why nobody was stepping forward. (laughs) 
and will exempt his father's family from all taxes in Israel. Wow. So here is the king that everybody's pointing to and looking at, saying, why don't you go fight him, coming up with, how can I motivate somebody else to do this? And David, coincidentally, comes along. After weeks, hears it. And David asks the man standing in there, what's going to be done for the man who kills a Philistine? This Philistine. Not very respectful, not frightened, no tremor in his voice. What's going to be given to him? And who re- kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? That's David's perspective. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies, plural, of the living God? Who is he? We are God's people. David had this perception and awareness of who he was under God. We'll talk about that in a moment. And he checks again. Tell me again what you're going to get. So they told him. They repeated it. And then we are told that David's eldest brother, Eliab, does what older brothers do, heard him speaking with the men, got a bit angry with his younger brother. What are you doing here? And why did you come, basically? What have you done with those few sheep? You left them in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You've only come to watch the battle. Older brothers going crook on younger brothers and the younger brother replying, now what have I done? Can't I even speak, David says. And then he's not retaliating, but he is correcting a little bit and David wanders away from him, ignores the older brother, as younger brothers do. He then turned to someone else and asked the same question, brought up the same matter. Man answered him the same way. David kept having this conversation. I don't know if he's a slow learner, if that's what it was, or circumstances, the providence of God. Saul eventually hears that the word spreads. Someone's asking about this. Who is it? Bring him to me. And so David goes and he meets Saul. Now, back in chapter 16, David has already met Saul because David, remember, is playing the guitar when the bad spirit comes upon him. So probably this is not in chronological sequence that that happened maybe a little bit later and this is maybe the first time that David is going to meet Saul. That's one way of understanding it. So David comes. Maybe you could understand it that Saul did know David recognised him a little bit. Well, we'll see. Uh, So David uh, chuffs off, goes to meet with Saul. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine your servant will go and fight him. Saul said, you're not able to go and fight him. You're only a boy. He's been fighting from his youth. So not even Saul thinks David's capable of doing it. That's the author indicating to us, here is David, who is in a non-impressive state whom God is going to use. God works through the weak, the unimportant, the ordinary to achieve his purposes. And David said to Saul, verse 34, having been told you're a boy, you're inexperienced, you're going to get walked, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. It's interesting, you see, in the ordinary, normal circumstances of life, David going about his business, doing what he was supposed to be doing, God was preparing him. God was doing something in David in that situation. That's what God's doing in your life. In your normal, ordinary life, God is at work. He's preparing you. David says, When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. You ever fought a lion? I had a go at a cat once. 
ever fought a bear? When it turned on me, I seized it by the hair of its chinny-chin-chin, it says. I struck it and killed it. He's a bit of a goer, isn't he? Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Why? Because he has defied the armies of the living God. He's crossed the line. He's gone too far. God won't stand for that. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. Saul says to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. (laughs) And then Saul tries to do what we often try to do. Again, Saul's perspective is the human only, relying on our own abilities and strengths. Saul dresses David in his own tunic. See, Saul's got a coat of armour. Saul's got a bronze helmet. And he's got a sword. He gives all of that to David who tries it on. Please note, it seems to fit. We're not told that it doesn't fit. I guess there are straps and maybe you can adjust the size of it slightly. Or perhaps it suggests that David is around about my height. It's possible. I always get the impression that he's a skinny little kid. But this indication points me he's rather tall perhaps for his age or something like that. So David puts all these things on and eventually he says, I can't go in this. It's not that I can't move in it, it's rather I haven't tested it. I don't know what it's like. I'm not comfortable in it. So he took them off. And then he took his staff, you know, his shepherd's crook, took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream because he left. Left Saul in the tent, went down into the valley, came to that stream which goes through the middle. He's going out to meet the hockey player, Goliath. And on the way out there, he stops at the stream, bends his knee, bends down, and he picks up how many stones? Why five? Commentators ask all of these inane questions. Don't, don't know, don't know, don't care. It's not important. He did. There are some commentators who say the reason he picked five stones was because when you read Chronicles, you find out that Goliath had four brothers. Well, if that's the case, now you've got David bending down, who never doesn't know who Goliath is, picks up five stones. I've got one for you. I've got one each for you. (laughs) Well, it's unlikely, isn't it? I think there's another reason. I think he picked up five because... because he could. There's a third reason. I think he picked up five because in case he missed. Did you get that right? Go to the top of the class. Um, that's my. We don't know. We picked up five smooth stones. How big were the stones? Well, again, we're not told. But 30 something years ago, when Rhonda and I were in a church plant in the southwestern parts of Sydney, we had an archaeologist come to this little community hall. It was made of wood and the wooden floor, wooden walls, and everything else. And he brought a rock with him from Israel, from the valley of Elah. One of the five, in fact, he'd know. He didn't say that. <laughs> but when he held it up, it's about this size. It's about two or three inches across in diameter. So it's not a little rock that we would put into a slingshot or a sling or something. It's a sizable thing. And he says, this is the typical size of the stone, apparently. I don't know. It's what he said. And he took it and he just dropped it. And it hit the wooden floor and there was his bang. And I've never forgotten it. Well, you know the story. David picks up five of these, puts them in a little bag that he's got, a shepherd's bag, 
and he advances towards the Philistine. And then comes Goliath with the Romeoic control shield in front of him moving around. And as David comes towards him, this is where we've nearly finished the introduction. This is all introduction, I think, to the key part of this chapter. Um, David's taken it off, got his stuff. Verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine and the shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. When Goliath looked at David and saw that he was only a boy, he was ruddy, rosy red cheeks, and handsome. I'm more like David than I was aware. <laughs> Says he despised him. Goliath, 10 foot, 9 foot 6, sees David, whatever height his was, 6 foot, maybe less, he despised him because of his youth. And he said to David, Am I a dog that you come out to me with a stick, you know, the shepherd's staff that he's carrying, and it chased me like a dog? He's being challenging and defying. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now we're at the most important paragraph in the chapter. This is what we need to take note of. All of this has been introduction right up until this point. And now you have David speaking. And there are 63 words used in the text, in the Hebrew text. 63 words. I didn't count them, I'm quoting somebody else. When it comes to actual battle, there's only 30-something words. The real emphasis is upon what David says, not what he did. What he did underlines what he said. Listen to what he says. David said to the Philistine, with no tremor in his voice but with I imagine courage and bravery you come against me with a sword, spear and a javelin and I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied I come to you in the name of God I am his representative God says you've crossed the line and he's dispatched me to deliver the message verse 46 this day the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I'll give your carcasses and the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. I come to you in the name of God so that the world might know that there is a God in Israel and all of those who are assembled here will know but the Lord saves, not by sword or by spear, but the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. That's the key part of the chapter. That's what David is, uh, the author wants us to note. David's theology, that God is sovereign, he rules and he wants us as his representatives to be available to him to defend his name, his honour, his glory. We are to be like David in life situations and circumstances. Verse 48, the story is told in two simple verses. As the Philistine moved closer to attack David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag, he takes out a stone, puts it in the sling, swings it around and lets it fly. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia article says that a stone in a sling, particularly a stone of about two to three inches across in diameter, can approach a speed of something like 200 kilometres an hour moving and it dongs Goliath on his head but he's got a helmet on 
So it hits him between here, in his forehead. It must be below just the shield or the, the line of the whatever. It hits him in the forehead. And it actually says, it doesn't just hit him, the stone sank into his forehead. Boom! And now with a stone in his forehead, he falls forward. And David, who doesn't have a sword, runs up to the Philistine and grabs his sword. Where's the shield there? Yeah, he's gone. David runs up, takes out Goliath's sword, and it's rather brutal, and then cuts off his head. Shunk. And the helmet has probably fallen off or whatever, and then, look, you read the passage, and then what does David do? He bends down, he grabs it by the hair, and he lifts up Goliath's head. And as you read the passage all the way through, the Philistines run away, the Israelites chase them. When the Israelites come back, they take all their weapons and plunder from their campsites, their tents. And David takes the head of Saul, verse 54. Sorry. What did I say? It's coming. Sorry. David takes the head of Goliath must have been a large head and it says he takes it to Jerusalem but he's still got it he's still carrying it around look what I've got <laughs> and it's really dishonouring to Goliath but it's defending the honour of the sovereign God of Israel this is the fool who has criticised and attacked God, look what happened to him off with his head God will win, God will have his way and God can use anybody but God tends to use particular sorts of people. Whom does God use to fight spiritual battles? Because ultimately this is a spiritual battle. There was a physical encounter. There were two armies and so on. But the, author, the story's in our Bibles because there's a spiritual battle going on. It's the honour of God's name in the world. That's what we have to note and to take um, focus of. Must the Lord's name be shamed in our world? Well, look at the size of the guy who's opposing him. Well, we were told last week not simply to look on outward appearances. Chapter 16, verse 7, in fact, says, and we've always applied it to what a person looks like to become the king. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. What was said of one of David's brothers could equally be said of Goliath. Don't worry about how big he looks. As one preacher or commentator said, Israel saw Goliath and went, he's so big I can't win. And the preacher very aptly said, David's attitude was, he's so big I can't miss. Because God had given him this perspective. He was God's representative, God's servant. Well, you see, David was a man who was God-centred. He was theocentric. God-saturated. As one preacher said, he was intoxicated with God. He loved God. David was a godly young man. Authors, commentators say David's already written some of the Psalms. Well, they point to us to a man who encountered the true and living God. The Lord is my shepherd. The heavens declare the glory of God. God's name is to be honoured. Ascribe honour and glory to him. He is the sovereign God. The God who made the universe is the God is why does he consider us? Why does he care about us? David had this intimate personal relationship with the living God. He was God-focused. John Davis in his commentary, 
he says these words, and I give them to you. You think about this. What do you think of this? It's a personal reflection. John Davis says, The tragedy is that if someone was to work very closely with us, get to know us, hear our words in all the circumstances of life, that in times of um, stress, trouble or danger, that these people would never guess that we had a relationship with a living God. The tragedy is someone was to hear our words, observe our life in times of stress, trouble and danger. Observers would not draw the conclusion that we are believers in God. That's worth thinking about. Is it obvious to others that we are God-centred, loyal to God, true to him in all the situations and circumstances of life? It's not just an outward veneer. I think I've been trying to remember all week who said it. Um, somebody said um, we should witness every day and if necessary use words. It's very clever. We should witness every day but if necessary, if necessary, use words. The author is trying to say we are to be witnesses for God by our life. We are to be consistent we are to be godly, we are to be God-centred, theocentric, we are to be God-focused in our speech, in our conduct, in our choices, in the way we conduct ourselves. David was like that, it would appear to me. What sort of people does God use to fight these spiritual battles? God uses spiritual people, people who know him, who love him, who are loyal to him, who are uncompromising. How did David come about that? Well, he was a shepherd, so I'm surmising now. There were times that he was often alone with God. That's exactly what Jesus says to us. Go into your room, close the door, talk to your father who is in secret. Time alone with God, shut the door. Get to know God personally, intimately. Spend time with him. Well, are you? You know as well as I do that you should. That's not the question. Are you? The reason I think sometimes we lose ground is because we are not godly. We are not God-centred. We are anxious and worried about circumstances of life and our perspective is here. Not like David's where his perspective is there. What is God doing? What does God want? David hears Goliath utter these words and David's immediate response is, you're joking. How are you going to let that fool get away with this? We need to do something. That's his immediate response. Everybody else is running, fearing, not David. He knows God. He knows God's standards. He knows what God wants. He was faithful. Not only intimate with God, times alone with God, but he was faithful. He was a faithful shepherd. What he did, though it was small and ordinary, he was faithful. Faithful in little things, then you'll be entrusted with much. That's what Jesus said. Faithful. So what's the best preparation you could do? Because that's what God was doing with David as a shepherd, preparing him. Well, God is preparing you in your studies, in your occupation, in your family, in all the circumstances of your life. In the kingdom of God, there are no such things as a wasted experience. God takes all of the situations, the frustrations, the annoyances, the good times, pleasant, the unpleasant, and he uses that to shape us that we can become better, passionate followers of him. But David was also humble. He didn't have a big head. 
he is the anointed king of Israel by Samuel last week and here he is, the anointed king, the chosen one, off with a sheep. Not too important to do the little tasks. This anointed king, listening to his father, obedient to what his father Jesse wanted him to do. This anointed king, when rebuked, challenged by his brothers, doesn't retaliate. Responds, but doesn't retaliate. He didn't have any big ideas about himself. He was a young guy, sold out to God, faithful, humble, knowing and loving and wanting to do what God wanted him to do in his life. And so God said, you, I'll use you. It's exactly what the author of Chronicles says, the eyes of the Lord roam to and fro throughout the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him, that he might strengthen and encourage and use them. So that my question to you is, what steps are you taking that you can be like David, a godly, theocentric person, in love with God? What steps are you taking? What's your plan? How are you improving spiritually? You don't have a plan? Well, you need one. Talk to one another about it. Ask one another, what do you do? What do you have in place? It's intentional. We need to do this. Just like we eat physically, so we need to eat spiritually and we need to be intentional about it. You might be drawing a blank and saying, well, what am I doing? I don't know. I'm not doing anything. What should I do? Well, that's a good question to ask. Read your Bible. Read it, study it, meditate upon it, apply it, memorise it, do all the things. Get into God's Word, the Bible. There is no replacement. There is no substitute. There is no other book that God has inspired. The Bible. Talk to God in prayer. Listen to God, both from his spirit but through his word, through preachers, through books. Read good Christian books. Um, get in fellowship. Continue to worship God. Be available to serve. Be a witness for him. These are the things that you can do intentionally. That you might be a spiritual person, God-centred, that God could use. When David went out onto the battlefield in his own shepherd's clothes and staff in hand, what did he see? Israel saw this giant colossus of a man who was opposing and defying God. What David saw was a man, a mere man, who was defying God. And I think David had that perspective because he had this perspective. He was God-centred. So he had God's response, God's attitude to Goliath. And just as I said before that David was God's representative, so are we. In wherever God has placed us in life, we are his representatives. Now listen carefully, I'll be quick. If we are his representatives in church, at home, at work, at school, at uni, wherever we are, in the network of our relationships, we represent him. What's our responsibility? To pray, love and proclaim. Our responsibility is to pray for our families, our work colleagues, our uni mates, our schoolmates, our teachers, our staff, wherever we are, in all the social networks of our life, pray. Pray that God will open the door for the gospel. We are to love them by our life, to be consistently godly. We are imperfect, so we will stuff up, we will stumble, we will get it wrong. But there is a way to respond, confess, repent, set it right, head in the same direction. Pray, love, and proclaim proclaim 
We are simply being sent as his representatives, as his ambassadors, to tell the truth. Not to Bible bash, not to force, but to proclaim. God says this. We are not sent. Don't, you need to listen carefully to this and you might want to come and talk to me about it. We are not sent to persuade and we are not sent to prove. We are sent to proclaim. Now there is a place for persuading, there is a place for proving because it strengthens our confidence, our faith in that which we are proclaiming. That's correct. But my concern is that I'm meeting people and talking with people who are not confident that they can prove and they're not confident they can persuade and therefore, because I can't prove it, because I can't persuade people, I don't know the reasons why, therefore I'll say nothing. But in fact, we are to pray, love and tell. We are to proclaim. Even if we don't know why, we know God said. In the first service I used this illustration. Because it's a current topic, a current issue about homosexuality and uh, gay marriage and should homosexual people be allowed to be married and should that be recognised in our, in our society? It can be a difficult issue to try and come up with how can I persuade or prove that this is a correct position of what we maintain? And because we can't argue the points or we're not sure of the arguments and we don't actually say anything, we're actually being sent to proclaim so if nothing else, we should simply say, well, God loves homosexual people, doesn't he? You bet he does. God loves sinners. God wants sinners to repent. But just because God loves homosexual people does not mean that that will endorse gay marriage. God's word says, God says, that that's not acceptable. Well, why not? Well, I don't know. God says. My job is simply to proclaim now where I can persuade or where I can prove, by all means add that. But don't pull back from the responsibility of proclaiming, of saying this is what God said. Why? I don't know why. God said it. Understand? We are God's representatives in the situations where he has placed us and we like David need to speak up to the honour of God, his name, his standards, his will and not to be silenced by the enemy. God used David because he was sold out to him. God used David because God knew that he would get the glory and not David. Let me conclude. God, uh, David was God-centred because he was time alone with God, because he was faithful, he was humble, which led to him being just intoxicated with him. What steps are we taking to likewise be God-centred? All of those things we spoke about. Like David, as God-centred people, we are his representatives and our responsibility is to pray, love and proclaim. How did God prepare David? In the normal, ordinary circumstances of life. So, challenge, I finish with this. Therefore this week, let us look for God at work in the world, God at work in our relationships, in our situations, Look for the opportunities where you, as his representatives, are to honour him, to speak up for him, to demonstrate it consistently by our life, that we are wanting to live lives that please him. Let's join God in what he's trying to do in the world and in people's lives. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are, though the sovereign and almighty one, that you have bent your knee, stooped down, come into our world, lifted us up, sent a deliverer from Bethlehem, anointed by your spirit, weak in the eyes of the world, but your son, your chosen one, who has redeemed us, who is transforming us. Lord, help us this week to be intoxicated, consumed with love for you, with a desire to please you, to honour you. And in all the conversations, circumstances and situations of life, wherever you take us, may we, like David, represent you boldly, strongly, in a way that you are pleased. Lord, may your will be done. May your kingdom come. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.